We continue to have a number of talks um, at this conference regarding health and human trafficking. And, and I want you guys to know that the Christian Medical Dental Society is really leading the way in this country and internationally in bringing doctors to the forefront of, of addressing human trafficking. And I want you to know that there is an online uh, curriculum there's 11 or 12 modules. I can't remember how many we've done, but um, me and the other faculty members that are here speaking on human trafficking, me and Jeff Barrows, uh, Clyde Powell, and Gloria Halverson, um, have been working together over the last year to develop an online curriculum. If you want CME, um, there's a minimal charge for just about the cheapest CME you'll find around. And uh, then if you want to go through the modules, if you're a student, don't need the CME, but want to learn about it, uh, you can go on and, and log on and go through the modules for free. But if you want the CME credit, it's cheap. It's like $15 an hour or something like that. It was a real bargain. So please take advantage of that. Um, just to let you know, that's on the CMDA website, and you go to CME or you go to their uh, trafficking page or however you find it, just a couple clicks, you guys will find it, I'm sure. Um, and so make sure you take advantage of that. And right now, uh, about three-quarters of the modules have been uh, loaded onto the website. And as uh, you guys are finished with the first few, then we'll get the rest of them up by the end of the year. So that would be great. And so this talk, um, we try to cover all the bases um, as far as health. I, I live in Thailand. I've been working in Asia full-time for the last 12 years. And so... I am bringing the international, uh, global perspective on human trafficking um, to this conference. I think it's the very next talk after this. Jeff Burroughs will be speaking on what trafficking looks like in the USA as far as domestic trafficking of Americans within America as well as foreign nationals trafficked into the United States. This talk is about what is... What, what's happening globally? Now, it's, it's way more than I can cover in 50, in, uh, 50 minutes, um, but I'll run over some of the emerging trends um, and new, uh, new thinking about what's going on. And, and if you guys were in Ravi, uh, Ravi Jakarayan's uh, talk this morning, you know, he goes over the big economic process and, and the way we have to think broader than just health or, or medical problems in order to understand a global problem like human trafficking, but it really, because the globalization of economics and, and other issues really are driving uh, human trafficking in order to be effective practitioners in addressing uh, human trafficking, we need to understand some of these larger global pictures than just what does it look like to uh, treat somebody. And so the learning objectives, uh, we know that. So I've already gone over some of the overview. And so just an overview about how healthcare intersects human trafficking. Of course, there's different stages of human trafficking from their risk factors before they're trafficked all the way through the after they're reintegrated into either a new situation or um, back into their family or what have you. And so healthcare intersects all those stages, but we still don't have very much data. I mean, as much um, publicity, 
uh, has been drawn to this very, um, very highly emotional and electric topic. There's still very few dollars going into research to inform our practices. So we need to know about more about the health risks. We need to know more about how to identify victims. We need to be more effective advocates, um, knowing what to advocate for. What do the victims or the survivors need? And then also how to prevent um, trafficking where you are. And so we talked about understanding these larger trends in order to inform our practices. Um, so one of, one of the trends that's going on that I, that is, one, one of the basic needs, I went, recently went to an international conference and we're talking about how do you estimate how many people are being trafficked. You'll hear 27 million, you'll hear 15 million, you'll, in, uh, you'll hear 20.9 million. The UN ODC, I mean, it's a virtual alphabet soup of, of agencies working on this. It's the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, the International Organization of Migration, the International Labor Organization, and the USA TIP report. TIP is trafficking in persons. Different groups using different indicators and parameters to define their numbers. Sometimes, which they'll use... Um, actually convictions of cases or estimates based on population. Also, different countries have different laws about what constitutes a trafficking case. And so comparing even from country to country can be different because one country considers this trafficking, another considers it not trafficking. How do you compare? The latest estimate, and this was also reported in our U.S. State Department's TIP report was 20.9 million people are trafficked. That includes adults and children. It includes trafficked for labor purposes or sex trafficking cases. And then it went into the prevalence per 1,000 inhabitants. Uh, you can see some of those statistics there on the board. Um, but the, the, the thing that they're very clear is that you cannot compare these ILO stats with ILO stats from a previous year because they changed their methodologies in collecting this data. They, um, they have stated that they, they are using a more robust uh, indicators to determine the numbers of trafficking, but when you're even comparing from one agency stats from one year to another, they say well, you can't compare because they're using different methodologies as we're discovering more. So. Why do numbers matter? Because it matters relating to um, just how many people are we dealing with? Where are they? And when you think in terms of public health, what is the estimated burden of disease? What, is the, what are the diseases uh, prevalent in that area? And what are victims more, most likely to suffer? And so when you look in terms of public health, numbers actually mean a lot. And so when, you, and, you know, when you're reading a, a medical journal, you're trying to figure out the statistics and whether it's valid or not and, and the statistical analysis, it's important to know what you're dealing with. And so the same is with trafficking because, you know, you can get overwhelmed with stories and stories. And, you know, I'm not saying stories are they're helpful, but only to a certain extent when we're trying to take a more academic approach, which I'm sure as health professionals we can appreciate. And um, 
So another trend uh, that I think is promising is looking at prevention strategies and identifying risk. And, and so in Southeast Asia, there's studies that are trying to look at social determinants. And so that, that, that's giving you or us as health practitioners ways to help identify victims or it helps you identify what might be some of their pre-existing health conditions. For example, are you seeing a lot of people with disabilities being trafficked? I mean, that is a risk factor, but what does it look like in your area? Or when you're looking at prevention strategies, looking at businesses and supply chain transparency, California has passed a, a couple of laws that are requiring businesses to establish some transparency in their supply chain so they know where their products are coming from and track that all the way back to the source, which is, I mean, I'm not saying these are the best or anything. I mean, there's, there's all controversy, but these are some of the trends that you're starting to hear about. Corporate social responsibility, ECPAT, that end child um, prostitution and trafficking. They have a code of conduct. They're really trying to work on the entertainment industry, um, travel industry, um, hotels and airlines and things like that to try to get them to raise awareness and to have transparency in their own um, in, in their own in their realms of business. Community awareness and action. The 335 campaign is something going on in Thailand where you have uh, people working in the schools to educate children about. Um, being safe, protecting yourself, and what does it look like when a stranger uh, wants to um, involve your, you and your friends? Uh, let me give you an example of what this looked like. There was a lady who was recruiting children in an elementary school in northern Thailand for a talent show. And the kids were asking their question. The kids had been through this training, and to make a long story short, they busted this person as a trafficker because the kids were kind of aware of the red flags and this person didn't quite fit a clean bill of, of safety as far as their concern. And so that lady was busted and, and they discovered another ring of trafficking of children in Northern Thailand um, through this thing. So it works. You get to the kids. Kids are sharp, let me tell you. And so this was a very positive campaign. And this campaign, by the way, is being sponsored and developed through the Christian Church of Thailand. Um, so if you want more about that, uh, let me know. But there's also trying to get the mangoes, it's um, mobilization and organiz mobilization advocacy um, NGOs trying to, how does that work? Um, Foot and Vanek are, have published a book. You can uh, take a footnote. I don't want to get into a lot of detail, just telling you uh, a little bit about what's out there. And then there's the fair trade movement and what does that mean and, and all that. It, it's Again, we have to look at um, what is the basis and the transparency. They have a fair trade label. Well, what does that mean? Is, that, is there a real substance to that label? Um, so, again... In today's world, there's labor trafficking. Um, there's a lot of sex trafficking, but we often forget that a lot of men are caught up in debt bondage. They're caught on fishing vessels. And, um, you know, it's been said by a U.N. Report, special reporter on human trafficking that traffickers fish in a stream of migration. So you have migration that's completely legitimate, and you have irregular or illegal migration, and then you have the traffickers taking advantage of certain loopholes. 
And so how it pertains to us is what does it look like in your particular area of interest? Where is there movement of people? There's a lot of Chinese uh, business activity in Africa. And so they're taking over uh, people from China to work there. But not all of it is necessarily legit. And then we're seeing African women being trafficked over into Asia. There's just certain portholes that are opened up because business and migration and development has opened the porthole. And there's certain loopholes where traffickers can work in. And so you have southern... You have East, Southeast Europeans in the Middle East. You have Asian fishermen being found everywhere. You have domestic servants um, to developed countries. Not saying that this is wrong. It's just you have to look at the trends and see where there might be people at risk. So one story that makes, and to help you understand, appreciate just how difficult of a situation international trafficking can be, is that I'm working with a group in, in Cambodia, and they're assessing not only trafficking within Cambodia, but Cambodians trafficked elsewhere. And so this uh, colleague was having meetings in South Africa, and then they were saying, oh, by the way, we have a couple of hundred Cambodian fishermen uh, trapped in South Africa because they were on a fishing vessel that was busted not for trafficking, but for illegal fishing. They found on board all of these uh, Cambodians enslaved, Cambodia does not have a political presence in South Africa. No embassy, no consulate. So these Cambodians were trapped there with no diplomatic way, no, no real um, clear diplomatic communication between the two countries because there's no embassy or consulate to try to deal with this. International Organization for Migration is having to intervene how to get these Cambodians back to uh, Cambodia from South Africa uh, with all the language barriers, the documentation, who's who, and who pays for it, right? That's the bottom line. So very, very complicated situation. And then, well, They've been locked up in some detention center, and, and you can just imagine their health is already, like, so terrible after being, you know, not cared for in a fishing vessel, then locked away in South Africa. Um, you can imagine the health consequences um, for that. Um, I have a couple slides on the greater Mekong subregion. I know Ravi this morning touched on that. But it's just an example, another example of the development that's going on. And when you look at China, uh, Thailand, Burma, Laos, PDR, Cambodia, and Vietnam all together working as a community, but not all these countries are equal in terms of economic stability. And so if you can imagine perhaps people from Cambodia and Laos, uh, Vietnam going into China, into Thailand, and, and Burmese, and it's just... Um, you know, I live right there in northern Thailand, and so we're beginning to see a lot of burden of trafficking, but not only trafficking, but HIV-AIDS and other um, infectious diseases and things that the um, people planning this hadn't quite um, accounted for. And so we're just talking about trafficking of children um, for forced labor, trafficking of women as forced brides, um, mail-order brides, if you will, um, and so also trafficking of men for laborers. They need laborers to build those railroads, to build those roads, to build those um, uh, lines. Um, 
of communication so, and all the dams that are being built up there along the Mekong and, and Sawin rivers. So, another point, um, and a real exciting emerging development that's going on, it's not nearly enough, is, is research into this area. Like I mentioned, very difficult to get um, the dollars needed. When you talk about research, and, you, and why, why can't we get funding for this? We don't have any real, I told you about numbers. Well, if you don't have any data, you don't have any problem. So the public health saying goes. So without a problem, um, other than a few stories of, you know, these girls being trafficked, without a problem, how do you get um, funding for research? You know, I've been trying to get a study published, and they keep saying, well, you don't have much data to back up what you're saying. Well, that's exactly my point. The point of the paper is to call for more research funding based on our estimates and, like, well, yeah, but we can't really publish. I'm like, well, that's kind of the point. And so you're, we're always caught in trying to develop the numbers to get more studies, to get more numbers that are more robust. And so there's a couple of good, um, good things to think about here. When we talk about, when you think of trafficking, you think of sex trafficking, and you think of sex trafficking of, of girls. Or we don't even think of boys. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of attention and more energy being focused in that area. So our research is biased, and therefore our numbers are biased, and our stories are biased, which leads to more interest because we have more numbers and more stories and more research. And so it goes. But there's more, which I'll talk about. There's areas of, of, of research that we really need to look at and um, Get that. So I said, tend to be women and children rescued from the sex trafficking. Um, and so this was um, a, the first. The first paragraph is taken from the USA Tip Report in 2012. Those studied are most often those who have been rescued, but this does not necessarily reflect the true demographic of trafficked people worldwide. The second point there is, if we do not correct this, we may correct a, We may create a vicious cycle whereby we continue to support our misconceptions about victims by the way in which we provide assistance and therefore continue to ignore the needs of populations which do not fit within our framework. And that framework being defined as what we consider to be uh, the most needy, the, the most numbers of victims. And that was from the USAID Best Practice um, 2008. So, Looking at what are some promising research efforts being out there and how can we support that and build on it. Um, looking at well, what is the best model for restorative care, I mean aftercare. Is it community-based? Is it residential care? Is it a mixture of both? Do you have dorm-style um, arrangements or do you have two in a room or do you have single rooms? What does it look like? And what does that look like based on the context of your area? It may look like it will probably look different in America than it does in China, than it does in Southeast Asia. Um, and, but there is a research project going on in Cambodia um, talking about meeting the needs and desires of the survivors, actually talking to them, doing some qualitative and quantitative um, questions, uh, looking at 
reintegration, you know, re or integration, meaning reintegration, meaning going back into a similar um, setting as they came from, such as their family, or integration into the current place or a new place altogether. And so looking at what does it look like to develop that. Another project, I mean, I, let me tell you, Cambodia has it going on. This is another research project called the Butterfly Longitudinal Reintegration Research Project. And uh, you could probably, you could Google those letters and you can get reports. They're in their third year. It's, um, it's a 10-year prospective study, which means they've got a cohort of about 150 uh, people who were, who have been in aftercare services. Uh, no, I take that back. Not all of them are in aftercare services. There's a small section of those um, people who denied assistance, but they're still following them through the 10 years to say, okay, the denied assistance people, what do they think? What's their attitude? The people who are in some, who are in some kind of restorative care, they're also studying men and women, boys and girls. The age group is usually in their late teens to early 20s. And it gives a voice to those who have been exploited on what has worked and what hasn't. It's um, asking hard questions. Uh, there's a few projects that have been willing to open up and say, okay, really, we want to know what are we doing right, but more importantly, what are we doing wrong? How can we be doing better? And I really applaud them for this. Um, so keep track on that. Uh, Google it. It's going to be um, quite a solid uh, project. And so also looking at the sexual, sexual exploitation of boys. What about boys? Often being overlooked and ignored, they have different needs. Um, they have different situations. But a lot of people, they really don't want to go there. Um, it's, it's, it can be quite sticky, but it's not, it's not as sticky as you think. Um, I happen to uh, collaborate with a group that does, re does outreach to boys. And there is research going on in Cambodia, in India, in Thailand, and I think the Philippines as well, um, involving uh, the organizations such as Love 146, um, First Step, um, and Urban Light. Uh, really interested in, in research and really focusing on the risk factors, um, the needs of boys, um, and then how can we help meet their needs in a restorative care uh, setting. You have to discuss uh, barriers such as cultural norms and the social stigma and those contributing to problems. And so it's, um, it's really breakthrough, and I applaud these people. So try to get behind and look, you know, be proactive or, or suggest to people, you know, well, you're working in trafficking, so are you working with boys? You know, ask those questions. So why not boys? Why, why only girls? And, and just to ask some questions. I'm not saying you have to. You know, we should always do what we're being led to do and what the needs are in your particular community. But always try to ask that question and keep it on your mind. Because um, the statistics are that one in six boys uh, in the world in their lifetime will be abused, either as boys, adolescents, or men. One in six. That's a worldwide statistic. Um, so it's about one in four women, actually. Um, so they're not that far behind. Other research ideas um, regarding specific health care. We need more research on 
um, HPV and cervical dysplasia uh, research, we need to know, okay, so we have 2012 uh, recommendations on screening for HPV in uh, adolescents and, and also for uh, those of us in our 30s and 40s and, and even for men and for women, but what does it look like for someone who has been exposed to high-risk sex when they were nine? And how does that change the risk factors? And how does that change um, their susceptibility to getting uh, cervical cancer or dysplasia? And could they, be, um, could they be having symptoms and getting cancer at an earlier age? Well, that's a good question. We don't really know. And so when do you start? Do you start screening early or not? Um, you know, there's a whole, this is not a talk about that. You can uh, go talk to Gloria Halverson <laughs> about cervical dysplasia. She's um, the expert on that. But um, things to think about, you know, when you're talking about the specific risk factors for trafficking victims. We need to know about how to address mental health problems and, and specifically around the world, how you address that in a culturally um, contextualized um, area. There's still... There's still application, you know, there's valid application for our models such as trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or perhaps EMDR. Um, but how you apply those in different cultures may differ. I'm not a mental health expert. I happen to know, you know, some of the arguments pro or con and what to do and how to implement it. But it's things we really need to know more about. What about the demand side of trafficking? Uh, research on that, um, and I talked about the monitoring and evaluation of aftercare programs, and also research to discover better models for estimating the number of trafficking victims. There are other emerging trends to know about. I'm sure uh, social media is no big surprise um, that you know we're using more of that, not only in um, investigations, but also creating awareness in not only the United States, but around the world. Um, and about educating, and also about prevention, and different ways to educate communities about, um, you know, how not to fall um, for trafficking. You know, if you're going to migrate, how to migrate safely, um, and so forth. Also using DNA and other genetic testing to, for example, well, is that... Um, is that beggar on the street holding that baby? Is that baby really uh, that person's child? Um, who know? You know, there's been talk about, oh, we can do genetic testing, but how do you do that ethically, keeping in mind the rights of the child and things like that, and doing research like that in countries? Um, and so I've just that's just another example of recently of a recent project I was involved in in Thailand, and you know how you how you use some modern technology to do investigation and doing it ethically um, and keeping the victim in their focus and not just the perpetrator. There's more research on offenders. You know, when they're doing studies on people who've been convicted of, of trafficking, they're finding alarming numbers of women who are offenders. Okay? But who is that really? I mean, are these women who are trafficked no longer able to serve in providing sexual services, but then are continuing to be trafficked as recruiters. And then as trafficked as recruiters, so they are, they're recruiting, but they still have a boss forcing them to do this. And then are they the low-hanging fruit that are easily picked off and, and convicted? You know, who knows? Or are they really 
just, are they really traffickers um, in it for the money and all that? I mean, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why people uh, are fall victims uh, to being trafficked. And then there's a whole host of reasons of why people are fall victim to, to trafficking others. I mean, I'm not saying, I said that wrong. They're not victims as traffickers, but why are they getting into that business? Um, legal issues, community awareness. Um, networking and coalitions, I'm seeing more development of uh, organizations working together, sharing knowledge, building their capacity to work together. For example, if you have a coalition of Christian NGOs that are doing some prevention and awareness and aftercare services, but if they're getting together and bonding together, presenting themselves and wanting to work with the government, how better to do that representing a number of organizations passionate about the same thing, standing together as a unified body to their regional government, to the national government, or what have you. It's a, it's a much more um, powerful platform than just individuals sort of seemingly doing their own thing. Um, and so I, we're seeing this develop um, throughout in several countries in Asia and also across nations. Like when you have Nepal, Bangladesh, and West Bengal area of India, uh, looking at the same populations, trafficking victims moving amongst and through those three countries, it makes sense for them to kind of get together and, and form their own coalition. So that's just one example of what's um, being done powerfully to help each other. And so on to that, more strengthening NGOs. Um, there's more collaboration. There's transparency and equipping of each other, um, sharing their knowledge, but also sharing their pitfalls, sharing what they've done wrong and how they might do differently to help that. Now, not everyone participates, but I encourage you uh, to continue to look at who is, who, is, who is open, who can stand, who, can, who is helping Who's been doing this a while that will take time to help someone else um, who's, who hasn't been doing this quite as long uh, to share their knowledge to help as many people as possible? And so one of the questions that I often get, and I was just reminded this morning, it's like, so everyone wants to know, and so hopefully this will answer many of your questions um, when you come up. So what do you look for in a project? You know, internationally, you know, we want to get involved. And, and so what does that look like? Uh, and, and it looks like, you know, are they transparent um, in their financial business? Are they transparent with who's on their board? Can, do, can you get in touch with their board? Can you get in touch with their leadership? Is it clear what they're doing? Or is it just sort of a bunch of statistics and stories to pull at your heartstrings, but you're not really clear about what they do? Or is it only rescue? Well, if they're only doing rescue, then, well, then what happens after they're rescued? Um, are they collaborating with others in the field? Are they collaborating with uh, the government? Are they leg legally registered? Are they working um, with people, with the government, or with other authorities? Oh, what does that look like? Do they have a strong media policy or a child protection policy? Or are they, um, some organizations, quite frankly, exploit the children they're trying to help to generate stories? I mean, posting their pictures, their stories, or their names, or whatever. I mean, you really have to look at what is being done right. Are they really protecting their children, or are they about promoting their brand? 
or their name. Um, this is true of Christian and non-Christian NGOs um, who are in this business. And, you know, are they taking a holistic approach to restorative care? Are they looking at health care? Are they looking at mental health care? Are they, do they have a plan for moving their survivors through into integration? Or is it sort of a nebulous, well, you know, we're just kind of like living here in this community. I mean, these people really want a life and they really, you know, it takes some, I'm not saying there's one plan that's right for everyone, but everyone wants to move on with their life. And sometimes it'll take them two years and sometimes it'll take them two months. It really depends upon when they're ready. But you, you want to you work with an organization that is, that is addressing a plan and, uh, and working with uh, their clients in moving them forward and building their life again. And so in conclusion, and you know, I think we'll have plenty of time, well, some time for questions. So basically, just to understand that you know, human trafficking is very, very complex and complicated, and, but because health intersects at every part, understanding some of these complications helps you devise um, effective interventions as a healthcare professional. Um, and that re healthcare really is central to the restoration of a trafficked person. And that, um, you know, as health professionals, we, we bring a mindset of evidence based interventions to a topic such as human trafficking, where evidence, quite frankly, is often thrown out the window in lieu of heart wrenching stories you know, in movies, and so we really need to continue to focus on are we being effective and is there evaluation of our interventions to make sure we really are doing the best. Uh, we want kingdom work to be excellent work, right? And so really trying to generate, um, getting your donors on board, helping foundations and other people and churches to understand how to, um, how to, where to put your funds, how to invest well, um, and doing your research, doing your homework, um, reading good books, um, articles, talking with people who've been doing this a while. And so there's my contact information. Um, and so I'll open it up to uh, questions. Um, hopefully there's a lot or not. So anything regarding this talk or anything that you've heard? I, mean, I don't even know. I think we have 10 minutes or 15 or 20 minutes, so I plan that pretty well. Questions, comments, concerns? Disagreements? Yes? The question was, is sex trafficking more or more common, or was that more common? More com okay, is sex trafficking more common than labor trafficking? Well, the problem, it's really hard to say. Uh, I think, you know, some of the statistics that have been published say it's about 50 to 60 percent sex trafficking and the other labor trafficking, but I'm not so sure. It's, it's more... It's a lot more difficult to identify victims of labor trafficking because it looks not that much different. But then you have to look at women who are trafficked for labor purposes will also be sexually abused. Well, so will men, by the way. Uh, men are, will also be sexually abused um, in, 
in a situation that's not trafficking for sexual um, for providing sexual services. It's um it's difficult to say. It's 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 a good question, but the stats are leaning a little bit more on the. I mean, it depends. I mean, another I, I can find reports that will say labor is more common actually, and then sex less common. So you can't really say yes. Um, well, you could have, well, for men and boys, it could be men traffic for labor purposes, brick kilns or construction projects or whatever, but it's also massage parlors. Um, it's bro boy brothels. It's bars. It's also boys, to be honest, it's not always boys being strictly trafficked, okay? It's boys being exploited, but not necessarily trafficked. Does that make sense? Okay, so you have a, I work with a group. There's this boys on the street. Um, and they're on the street because they were abandoned or orphaned, and they went into a children's home. They were abused. They were sexually abused or physically abused in the children's home, so they ran away from the children's home, and now they're on the street. And then they go in the bars, and they sell sexual services for money to stay on the street. Now, that they are being exploited, but not necessarily trafficked, but they are also at risk for being trafficked. And be, But to answer your question specifically about trafficking boys for sexual services. There's so little information about that. Um, but I, I can tell you sort of what it looks like in the context. For that, both sexes? Um, like boys being used for, for female and male sexual or like porn industry? Or uh, yeah, I mean, that it, it's, it's also for porn is considered for in a child. You can you can traffic a child and it just be used for you know if you're taking pornofo pornographic photos of them that's considered um, you know if you're forcing you don't have to prove the forced part of coercion but if you're using that person that if you're using that person for personal um, profit or gain uh, then you're trafficking that person and for a child you don't have to prove that they've been forced because they're easily manipulated yes. How Uh, like from, like well, from a trafficking situation, huh? Streets, bars. Well, are the organizations providing an option for the person to go into a safe so they don't have to be doing? Oh yeah, I mean yeah, I mean if if they're if yes, and sometimes sometimes they're not always willing. I mean if you kidnap someone who's being trafficked, they may feel like. They may feel like they're being kidnapped again. Even though they hate their life, they hate their situation, it's a whole messed up psychological bind that they're in. That is the life that they've known. That's the life that they've adapted to. And I'm not saying this is true for 100%, but there have been cases of people who are trapped in a traffic situation that has sometimes difficult for them to get out of that situation um, because of their psychological bondage. Is there a statistics on how many people have gone to a halfway house and have left the halfway house and went back to the street of their own choice? Uh, no, because not enough organ. Well, the organizations willing to ask that of themselves is not enough to really have any statistical significance. The, okay, the question is, she asked, 
Are there statistics on how many people who have been in some kind of shelter care that have left and gone back to their life, their previous life on the street or whatever? And I, my answer was that not enough people are asking that question of themselves to know, to actually take statistics. Or even if they're not willing, they're just not recording it because they're not in the habit of uh, recording things like that or taking notes or statistics or having um, sort of a chart, uh, an ongoing chart of someone under their care. It's not necessarily because they're unwilling. It's just they haven't thought through the process of, you know, charting or keeping track. So that's a very good question, keeping track of that um, we, then not enough people are asking the question to really know. But that's the, that's the kind of thing that some of these projects I've mentioned want to address. Okay? Yes? Um, I know we've talked about international trafficking. Usually it's in areas where people are trying to go for a job and look for a better living. And usually, especially in Eastern Europe, people think of America and Western Europe. But what does trafficking look like in the States? I mean, I know it's a whole different thing okay. that we're yeah. talking about, but I mean, what, what should we, like, warn people about here who are in the States where obviously they may not be looking for okay. a job? Is there a job available? The question was, what is, um, what is trafficking look like in the States? And I'm just going to punt that to next hour. Jeff Burrows and his talk on domestic trafficking. That's, I'm just, I'm just going to punt all the questions related to what is happening within USA borders to Jeff. Okay? So, yeah. Yes? Um, I was at the earlier one uh, about the macroeconomic yes. development in mm -hmm. the region. Is it looking like because of the expansion of economic development in that region, because I was noticing one of the slides indicated that most of the people that are being trafficked are actually being trafficked into Thailand. Is that what the numbers are bearing out, or is it the majority of the sex trafficking, the labor trafficking, is it moving into Thailand? Is that where the main issue is, or is it throughout the region? I'm just sort of trying to understand where the majority of the problem is, is moving into. I know Thailand's the most developed of the nation, so it's because of that that these groups are being brought in for these projects and other things because there's money to be thrown around and people have, sadly, indulgences they want to indulge in. I mean, what are the numbers bearing out in terms of which country is has the most problem in this region with this trafficking issue? Okay, he's referring to the greater Mekong subregion and the areas that are suffering the most um, problems or the, the greater numbers of trafficking. And, and Thailand... Um, being thrown out, because that is one of the most developed areas. There is a lot of work being done in, in Thailand, but what happens is is that it's not, not everyone is going into Thailand. There is a lot of work. So basically, where there's work to be done is where you'll find, you'll find migrant workers, okay? And then within that pool of migrant workers, you'll be able to find people who are trafficked. But then you'll also find a lot of women traffic to the areas of the work to service, if you will, uh, the men, the, 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 the migrant laborers. Now, you can follow the truck routes. I used to live in southwest China, and it was in Yunnan province, and it was, you know, they'd have these migrant camps, and where the migrant camps, they had a migrant of um, people there who were trafficked for um, 
sexual, perp, you know, to service the, the migrant people. So it's um, not just one, but where you'll see people going. But there's also a lot of movement of women into China as well, um, regardless just because of the gender gap that exists there. Uh, did I see another hand? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um, it's yeah. That's that's a very good question. It's it's a little complicated because of the complicated nature. We're trying, and because the really the needs, short-term needs, not so much. Um, if you want to commit to a year or two, I can name a few. So <laughs> it's just because it takes a while to understand. Um, there are projects. Um, G, the CMDA has a few. Um, GHO trips, the global health outreach trips that are focused um, on women in the sex trade. Uh, there's other trips that you, you, you might, I could probably plug you in with people as um, we're working on healthcare, but it's going to look a lot like um, you're not going to be doing a lot of clinics uh, with traffic people, okay? It's because their care is more long term, ongoing. It's not really, it's not. The crisis management is just when they come out, okay? So it, it looks a little bit different. But a lot of it is public health, education. It's educating shelters. It's educating people about the health needs and really organizing some research so we know best. And it's also about identification. Um, so if you're interested, you go to Jeff's um, talk next hour. That will be great, too. Listen, uh, what time is it? Oh, i got time for a couple more. That clock is fast. Sorry. Yes. Well, yes. Okay, correlation between uh, drug abuse and prostitution. Um, I'd say... Uh, yes, um, both and. I mean, it, you can you can find uh, people selling sex services to support their drug habit. Um, you also find, in my experience, also is you will find quite a few people becoming addicted, um, alcoholic, especially to numb themselves through and to keep up for the work. Either they'll take. Um, uppers to help them stay awake and maintain their energy, and then they'll take alcohol to forget the rest of the time. Okay, and so there is a there's a lot of issue. Then you are compounding the their mental health issues when you're talking about addiction on top of trauma, and then you've got some sexual addiction on top of that. Then you've got you know more trauma, and then whatever else they're bringing with them, because uh, someone might have. Uh, a mental health disability that puts them at risk for being trafficked, either a cognitive disability or they've got a mental health problem and that puts them at risk. So then you've just got all these compounding factors on, on top of that. So, yes. Okay, so the question was, um, 
where is the biggest need in terms of the approaches, right? Approaches along the spectrum of trafficking, whether it's um, prevention or aftercare. Like, I, you know, I think prevention. I mean, it's better. <laughs> I, I mean, I think I think prevention is most important because it'd be nice. You know, I mean, trafficking doesn't really start when a, someone is kidnapped, and it certainly doesn't start when they're rescued. Okay, that's not when the problem starts. The problem starts in the family. The problem starts in the family. Okay, you have poverty, you have economic issues, you have all these things, but what keeps people resilient? What keeps people together? What keeps families resilient? What keeps them faithful? What keeps them together? Okay, we're talking about family issues. Now, you can't say, like, working on a family. You can't say focus on the family is now a counter-trafficking organization. No, not exactly. Um, But when you look at prevention... And it really goes back to all the other things that we're trying to do, um, you know, as really as Christians, as people living the kingdom, right? It all comes down to uh, just restoring our earth, restoring us as people, as human beings, as images of God. That what it all comes down to. We all have our our work, you know, our slice of work in in trafficking or or healthcare missions or whatever whatever it is but when we're all still continue to remain connected it's a, our work as Christians is to is to restore the kingdom here on earth as God intended it and that starts really in the family when you talk about I mean I got a little you know you know nebulous and so boxyish but that's really what it comes down to on all my years you know you have all these factors but what keeps people together you know it's it's really the hope and so something unfortunate happens and break up a family, but that, but that family experience helps build resilience in people who have been victimized, okay? And so then it also will prevent people from being trafficked. So I, that's not, that's my answer. I mean, it's not very specific, um, but it's what I continue to come back to um, the longer I'm doing this. So, you know, I think we should wrap it up. Um, give people a chance to uh, network and get to the next uh, talk. Thank you for your attention, and uh, we'll see you around.